Welcome to the podcast version of Sunday Miscellany, which differs from the radio version for rights reasons. We hope you enjoy the program. I once wrote a poem which begins, It is autumn again, and I'm not ready. I don't suppose I shall ever be ready for autumn. I love summer and never want it to end. But how can anyone be churlish in this season of harvest? Right now, my garden is full of peas, beans, and glassy wine berries, and the hedgerows around my house are dense with blackberries and sloes turning purple. When I was a child, there was a harvest festival in our church each September. Up by the altar, a table stood laden with a sheath of corn, gigantic carrots, enormous marrows, baskets of plums, pyramids of green apples, and innumerable jars of jam. To my childish thinking, there was something wonderful about that sight, but even then it confused me. How could there be such plenty in the midst of my sadness at summer's end? Our gentle slide toward winter begins with laden orchards, vegetable gardens teeming with produce, and hedgerows dense with nuts and berries. Yet all that abundance is touched by a poignancy that leaves me wondering what harvest and autumn mean. Not the words and their origins, but what harvest and autumn mean to me now, this year, at this time in my life. In the yard in front of my house, there's a horse chestnut tree. I've come to think of that tree as a clock of summer, announcing arrival with a fanfare of white flowers in May. And then, by the slow, steady growth of the tiny green chestnuts, the tree becomes a timepiece, so that I only have to look at their size, minute, larger, large, to know how the months of summer are passing, slowly drawing their circle through the tree's trunk, marking another year of its life. In September, like a clock chiming its hour, the chestnuts fall, announcing summer's end. And it seems there's some lesson here, some clue as to what autumn means with its abundance, tied tight to a feeling of loss. What did you harvest this summer, I want to ask myself? What faint circle have those summer months drawn in the grain of your bone? And at that thought, I scatter with memories. Days of sunlight and rain, days of health and happiness taken for granted. Too many things to remember. But as I look through my harvest, one memory stands out. I had two Canadian visitors to stay, two teachers who live in a remote Inuit village in the far north. They brought me the news that the polar bears have grown skinny because the seals no longer have ice floes to rest on and the bears can't hunt without them. They brought me the news that the elders have never seen so many icebergs floating south. Unsure what to do with this information, I take its strange harvest to the September hedgerows. I gather rose hips to make tea, elderberries for a winter tonic, hawthorn to ease my heart. In my pockets, I collect crab apples, hazelnuts, and beach casings like soft gold stars. I'm soothed by the shapes and colors, by the bright red of rowans, by the pink and orange of spindleberries, the smoky blues and purples of sloe and damson. Some of Ireland's hedgerows are remnants of the ancient woods that once covered this island, but most date from the enclosure acts of the 1800s when the fields were first hedged in. Since then, those hedges have become the lungs of the country. 
the equivalent of Ireland's rainforest. Innumerable insects, birds, butterflies, and mammals depend on them. And yet they too are a fragile environment, vulnerable to economics. In the years of the Celtic tiger, Ireland lost 2,000 miles of hedgerow. Where, I ask myself, did all their species go? It is September. Another ring settles in the trunk of my chestnut tree, settles through my bone. My pockets are full of rose hips, hawthorn berries, and crab apples, and they soothe me. They tell me this is the nature of summer's end and harvest, that autumn, with all its poignancy, is the very spirit of life itself. It is the season that asks us to love the beauty of the world, to love nature's great display, to love all that perishes, all that does not last. It's far from literary lunches and arts festivals I was reared on a small farm about 40 miles from here in North Galway. We had milk and cows, dry cattle, sheep and always a few donkeys or asses as they were called back then before Shrek came along and upped the rural ass ante forever. <laughs> Our asses didn't have names, they had terms the mere ass, the ass foal, and the daddy, or the jack, as he was known. Cows might get names associated with their origins or physical markings. The Shkahana heifer, the Ballymac cow, the black whitehead, the Belgian blue, or the red shorthorn are some of the names I remember. I don't keep cattle now, but I have maintained the tradition of ass husbandry, keeping three or four ladies at a time. Blackie was the youngest until a year ago, and as her name suggests, she's a jet black ass with a distinguished looking white nose that cuts her cute face horizontally in half. About two years ago, Blackie began to show signs of brooding, and I, as a self-proclaimed ass whisperer, selected a handsome and obliging sperm donor from a local stud. Blackie was welcoming and instantly receptive to Mr Jack's amorous overtures and scanned in fold three months later. She gave birth under the span of a horse chestnut in the middle of the night on the 1st of May last year. I had anticipated the arrival, set the alarm for three in the morning and got there on time to help the little mite to its feet. I pushed it towards the mother's udder on its unsteady, delicate legs, 
the little hoofs like fine-born china, fresh uterine heat steaming from the blue-black curly hair, and there in the torchlight I saw it. The white nose, identical to its mother's, covering the lower half of the small black face. The foal suckled contentedly, the tail wagged, and I, in my ass-whisperer gender identification role, reached for the undercarriage where I found, to my chagrin between finger and thumb, a piece of flesh. A positive validation of maleness. An unwelcome appendage in an otherwise adorable thing. A male ass in an all-female ass family would be problematic. But I laid aside my concerns, so enamoured was I with the exquisitely adorable black and white progeny before me. Next morning, the man himself, who grew up in the town and is not strictly an ass man, came out to inspect. Look at the face of him, he said, like an upside-down pint of stout with a creamy head in it. You'll have to call him Arthur. (laughs) And I did. Arthur thrived, galloped and cavorted all around the summer paddocks with his mother, his auntie and cousins. Joggers stopped to talk to him. Tourists took photos and all the neighbours' children loved Arthur. In my ass-whisperer grooming role and in preparation for the day we would have to load him into a horse box or have his hooves trimmed, I began the manual handling routine petting and stroking him daily. I introduced the brush which he loved. I'd start at the neck, then the mane, down along his back and up and down both sides of the rump. One morning, when he was about six months old, I knelt down to brush the belly and spotted them. Four little black teats. And not a sign of it. The yoke, the thimble of his manhood, gone. His maleness invalidated, (laughs) replaced with an udder, turning the he into a she in a brush stroke. The man himself muttered something about speck savers. (laughs) He, she, it, my transgender ass fool, whose name the entire parish knew, became an anomaly. I couldn't call her Arthur, could I? And there was no way of feminising it. The man himself started calling her no name. Have you given Blackie a no name the hay, he'd say with a grin. A few weeks later, driving down from Dublin, I heard Dustin Hoffman being interviewed on the radio, talking about male actors playing female roles and his experience in the movie Tootsie. I rang the man himself and said I had a name for no name. Earlier this year, we invited Tootsie's father back, and Blackie's second foal is due next April. So if I'm lucky enough to be invited to Shorelines Arts Festival 2016, I could have another ass's tale for ye. (laughs) 
Rhododendron. Sushepel kuin lashtist an as ta lanuin og on willen gar, a shul fasash de kail an ahish, den geaduir o la na banisha. Ta suile klachtehe er an mach rirhacht, is he the tacht in imrishti gene, i drawan al tora, mar will solace shiri an dochish, fos er lassa. Ta bla rhododendron a shade, tre foul bog ivwino grete a greene, is an vridog a giri quinnel a lassa ignorai li. Tan ther guler tre hine, is a live a kri, mar a vi an lason gurchur an tauchi, fine oer er a mare. Beren a ferkele er a lavin hash, is lushkin dora te na quinle a chrekin mean. Ligin a rhododendron, osna kura. Is fadelo gomeg banish eleko le trieler in anguni korkra. In the empty church by the waterfall, a young couple from Mullingar walk the narrow aisle of happiness for the first time since the wedding. Their eyes have grown accustomed to the semi-dark as they approach in their denim jeans the altar where the perpetual light of hope still flickers. The scent of rhododendrons blows through a small hole in the stained glass of their memory and the bride is having trouble lighting her white candle at the railings. All around the air is on fire and her hand shakes as it did that day the future placed its old gold ring on her finger. Her husband catches her moist hand and the hot tears of the candle scald his soft skin. The rhododendrons breathe a fragrant sigh. They can't wait for another wedding to go to in their lovely purple dresses. At a bend in the trail, he turned to look back. It was but a moment, and then the mountain path was vacant, and I saw him no more. These are lines from a book called Red Cloud, about the American Indians, first published in 1882. This book became the foundation of a friendship that began back in the 80s between me and a local bachelor farmer, Nicholas Tracy. Together we travelled through a library of lines, exchanged books from Gibran to Kavanagh and shared the joy of words. Sometimes I'd chance upon his kind face in town, carrying a bucket or two, his feet set in Wellingtons, but a line of verse was always to hand. He'd deliver the lines there in the street, casting a ray of pleasure into my day. Other times, he would drop in with a copy of a poem, a quote, or a book. Our mutual love of words led us to form the Maple Poetry Group. 
Every few weeks, wordsmiths congregated in the maple bar, hence the name, reciting poetry old and new, while some brave souls read their own poems. From his corner seat, Nicholas would entertain Portumna with Filiacht Asquelga, or even, as he excelled in the classics, a taste of Ovid or a slab of Virgil. Seven years ago, he became unwell, and I took him on that first of many visits he had to make to doctors and hospitals. This farmer, who loved his fields and his animals as much as he loved his words, was suddenly confined to a wheelchair. But his mind was not confined. My visits to his room in the nursing home were always welcomed, and I learned from him how illness can be embraced. Acceptance, married with a deep faith, buoyed him through this new season. He challenged me to find poems with just a one-line clue from him, and he plagued me to locate his copy of Red Cloud. He recited passages from it easily, but his original copy was not to be found on the shelves at his home, nor in any bookshop. Eventually, I tracked down a new copy of General Sir William Francis Butler's Red Cloud, A Tale of the Great Prairie, and like a child, I presented it to him. But he didn't want it for himself. Nicholas was gifting it to me so I could travel the prairie with his American Indian, Red Cloud. He entrusted me with another red book, his personal musty red cathedral book, an A4 hard book accounts book. This particular red book, well-fingered, with loose pages sticking out, contains a record of his life and interests. Turning the pages, I see him, his hand dancing across each sheet, filling them with Shakespeare sonnets, an Irish version of Humpty Dumpty, the ballads of Robert Service, as well as countless lyrics from Ireland's own. Imagine my surprise at finding a poem of mine among the 300 entries, one he liked particularly, which he called Honey Blanket. Interspersed among the rhymes are farm notes. In 1988, for example, he paid £140 for feed in Classics, the local hardware store. In pristine penmanship, he listed the gods of Greece and Rome, the air gap setting for a Husqvarna chainsaw, and epitaphs labelled tombstone humour, like, Here lies the body of Benjamin John, whose bicycle stopped, but he went on. <laughs> or, Here lies the body of Ethan Bevan, killed by lightning sent from heaven, for trading horses on Sunday, June 11, in the year 1827. Other pages list directions for bridge moves and tips for poker, as Nicholas was a card shark all his life. And yet, more pages record collective nouns, preparation for the pub quizzes he enjoyed, where that brain whirred into fifth gear. My collective noun for this treasury in Nicholas's red book is a long hand of loved lines. Lines of pain on his face sometimes had him uneasy, 
but his insight and education from London's building sites to the Oblate College Bell Camp fortified his days. He prayed a lot and facing death fearlessly spoke of what he would say to the folks he would meet on the other side. When I asked him who he was hoping to meet, when he mentioned Noah and Abraham, among others, I knew for sure I was dealing with a well-examined life. Through his final days, I read, recited, reread from his red book. I held his hand and mine right until his last breath. I read aloud the last lines from his treasured red cloud. Whenever the wind stirs the tree branch or rustles the reed and meadows, wherever the sun goes down over distance of sea or land, in the moonlight of nights, in the snow of long winters, you will be near me still. My father was an only child who, at the age of four, inherited the family farm near Cullen, Cullini Cueve in North Cork, in a townland called Knockdov, a black hill, which with its predominantly north-sloping wet fields was said to be a hard farm to work. He hated the farming, which he left to his hard-working Manchester-born wife, my mother, while he travelled County Kerry in a series of four prefects in Anglias selling insurance to teachers and post office managers and anyone else at his company, the Sun Life of Canada, could tempt. He hated selling insurance, too. He was an easygoing newspaper-reading man who wasn't interested in persuading anyone to buy anything. So he was even less suited to salesmanship than he was to bargaining over the sale of cattle and pigs. But there were compensations. The Sun Life of Canada's publicity materials were very attractive to us as children, and gave us a kind of curiosity value at school. First, there were the oblong sheets of pink blotting paper, six inches by four, with brightly coloured red-jacketed mounties on the back. And second, there were the small celluloid pocket-sized calendars, which, if you switched the light off at night and threw them in the fire, lit up the whole room more vividly than any electric light. <laughs> we knew it was a criminal waste but those seconds of incandescence had the power of magic my father traveled the whole of kerry including the long scenic coast from cardaniel in the south to causeway and ballybunion in the north a beat evoked in a lyrical poem by patty cronin of shinar cross i traveled all the kingdom from kinmare to newtown sands and i never met a native there but tinkers caravans during the summer holidays, we travelled with him and sat in the car or explored the beaches while he half-heartedly tried to entice people to take out life insurance. There was a complicating factor with his theatre of operation, though. We came from the fanatical football-supporting border area near Mill Street, 
where many legendary Cork footballing heroes originated, Din Connors, Cormac Deneen, and the great Toots Kelleher. So the sworn enemy, and mostly the vanquishers, were Kerry. On our summer trips around the county, we had to run the gauntlet of triumphalist green and gold flags. To make matters worse, my father always said that the Kerry heroes who defeated us were the nicest and most accommodating and decent people he ever came across. Jeremy O'Shea and John Dowling and Mick O'Dwyer. On the odd occasions when Cork beat Kerry and won Munster, he got tickets for Croke Park from contacts in Kerry like Michael O'Rourke and Lestole. Of course, they had no interest in using Kerry's ticket allocation to watch Cork. <laughs> and on one unforgettable trip back from Valencia to Cahar Savine in 1959, the elegant, austere figure of the incomparable Mick O'Connell sat at the boat's prow, six feet from us, as he travelled across for pre-All-Ireland training. My father died suddenly at a cork Kerry league match in a bitterly cold March day in 1962. I was 16, his sole companion there. As he stood around, numb at the end, while the doctors and priests ministered to him, a man with a Kerry rosette stopped by me and said, are you alone? Can we do anything to help you? It was extraordinarily appropriate and ironic and sad and consoling. Many years afterwards, I visited Montreal and I saw on the skyline the Sun Life building that had featured prominently on those blotters and calendars. And on the September Sunday before I left for the airport, I watched Kerry on Canadian television win yet another All-Ireland. And for once, I didn't begrudge it to them. That was a special Sunday Miscellany programme from the Shorelines Arts Festival in Portumna. It was first broadcast in 2015 and produced by Aoife Cormack. The scripts were Autumn and Harvest by Grace Wells. Identity Crisis by Anne-Marie Kennedy. Rhododendron, a poem by Louis de Puer. Red Books by Noel Linsky. And Sun Life of Canada was by Bernard O'Donoghue. The music was Romance by Shostakovich, played by the RTE Contempo Quartet. Three reels from East Galway, the first two by Paddy Fahey and the third one was Paddy Kelly's, played by Claire Cavill on concertina and Breather Cavill on fiddle. An extract from Haydn's Emperor Quartet, played by the RTE Contempo Quartet.
Joe Ryan's set dance and Madame Bonaparte played by Claire and Breda Cavill and Bartok's Romanian dances numbers 4, 5 and 6 also played by the RTE Contempo Quartet. And the quartet players are among the artists performing at the Shorelines Arts Festival, which continues today in Portumna. They're playing a concert this evening at 7.30 in Christchurch, presented by Galway Music Residency and the National String Quartet Foundation, and admission is free. If you're in the Portumna area, there's another event on this morning you might like to check out. Shoreline Strings and Lines Learned by Heart. It's rhymers and reciters competing for an award in the name of Nicholas Tracy, the man mentioned in Noel Linsky's script. And Vincent Woods of this parish is the adjudicator. That's happening at half eleven this morning at the Boathouse Bar in Portumna and you can donate at the door. More details at shorelinesartsfestival.com. Sunday Miscellany's broadcast coordinator is Elaine Conlon. The producer is Sarah Binchy. And you can listen back at rte.ie slash radio one slash Sunday Miscellany. You've been listening to the Sunday Miscellany podcast. For more from us, you can follow the programme on Facebook, Twitter, Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Just search for RTE Sunday Miscellany.